Finally, we have a vaccine. Finally, we have something to be hopeful for. Just as that unrelenting grind, the demand, the uncertainty, the hard work for many months was really starting to take its toll on us. We finally have something to be hopeful about. I know what you're thinking. It's time to party. Sorry, what what was that? Oh, that there's something else you've got to tell us. That Oh right. Yeah, so we we've got to we've got to get the vaccine out to everyone. Sure thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and we've we've got to do that as general practice. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Do you know what though? The thing is, pretty busy at the moment. Demand seems to be the highest it's ever been. Everything takes longer. Quite a few people are off sick. It's a bit tricky at the moment. Oh, we don't have to worry because we can work from eight till eight, seven days a week, including bank holidays. So we'll have a bit of extra time to fit it all in. Well, this is good news. And thankfully, I didn't have any plans for Christmas because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Now, I'll be honest, it sounds like this kind of sucks for us, but I'm willing to give it a go because I genuinely think that it's going to be the best thing for my patients and our population. I've just got one request. Do you think there's any chance I could just see some of the data that we're basing this this strategy on, all this extra work and the fact that we're going to be jabbing an unknown vaccine into billions of people? Oh, we can't because all we've had is a press release and it's not been published in any scientific journals so that other scientists can scrutinise it. Oh, oh, what's that? Oh, we shouldn't worry because at least the Pfizer share price went up loads directly after the release and the CEO got to sell $5 million of his shares directly afterwards. Oh, well, maybe he's going to put that towards PCN funding, but I think we know who's having the real party here. It's the 13th of November. This is the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. Thanks for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast. My name is Neil Tucker and I'll be taking through the next 20 minutes or so on the latest news for us in primary care in the medical world. And of course, there's no bigger story than the fact that we may now have a vaccine imminently. So we're going to have a look at the issues around the vaccine. We are, of course, going to have a look at this DES for England. And then we're going to have a look at some of the latest research in the major journals as well. SSRIs for acute COVID, anyone who saw that coming? We're going to have a look at some data on cancer outcomes with delayed treatment. And then we're also going to have a look at a BMJ paper on a rapid antibody test, which the UK government has been buying up in its millions. So coronavirus, bad news for animals. I, um, I'm feeling a bit sorry for the 17 million mink in Denmark, which are about to be culled because they've been found to carry coronavirus. And I remember seeing a paper a few months ago about cats having had coronavirus identified in them. No one's culling the cats anytime soon, are they? One presumes they're all socially distancing. But good news for humans, because we now have a potential vaccine and it is imminent. And while we should be really, really pleased about this, because it really is good news, for any of us working in primary care, it's hard not to feel a little bit deflated this week. And I'm going to use the analogy of my three-year-old son here. 
So we potty trained him about a year ago. Things were going great until the lockdown. And then randomly, as soon as that started, he began to withhold. So he was holding on to his urine and poo until the point where he basically just exploded. This has now happened many times over the last nine months, but it happened to me a few days ago in the park. Uh, he said, Daddy, I need a poo. We're about three minutes from home. I said, right, we're going home. Quick, let's do it. Try and hold on. We didn't quite make it. Daddy, it's coming out, he tells me. Daddy, it's coming out. Just hold on, I say. We get home, we get up to the bathroom, we take his pants down, and lo and behold, there is not much poo in his pants. Oh, he says. Oh, I say. Looks like you managed to hold on. Strangely, he doesn't really need to do any more poo in the toilet, so we take off his trousers so that we can change his pants. And as I pick up the trousers, a perfectly formed turd falls out the bottom of them. And for me, that sums up this week with the vaccine and the dares. We get a little bit of hope, which is rapidly crushed by reality. So for me, the big thing about the vaccine is that we haven't actually seen any real data from it. So this is a press release, just a press release from a pharmaceutical company because they have such a good track record of being really straight up in the past. And the only things we really do know is that this is an interim analysis of their phase three clinical trial that's got 40,000 participants, um, vaccine versus placebo in a double blinded study. And the interim analysis is triggered when they have more than 90 participants who have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. So then all we really know is that 90% of those 94 positive cases that they've identified were in the placebo group. Now, before we get too highbrow on our evidence-based medicine pedestal, this is still promising, so we just need to keep things in perspective. So the full trial will be complete when they've got 164 positive cases. Given the levels of coronavirus around at the moment, that's not going to take long, so we're likely to see the full results in the not-too-distant future. And we'll have to hope that this gives us some more information, some of the answers that we're looking for. So in the study, they've recruited people up to the age of 85 years old. So that's very welcome because some of the vaccine trials have excluded older people. And of course, that's the group that we particularly want to know about because those are the ones who get really, really ill. So this is very welcome from Pfizer. However, in their study inclusion criteria, they do state that they want healthy participants. Now, that does mean they can still have pre-existing medical conditions conditions as long as they're stable but it is going to exclude lots of the frail elderly and of course that's the group that we're talking about vaccinating initially. So the truth is that we're going to lack data for this group. The other issue that Pfizer is not telling us about at the moment is whether the vaccine prevents transmission or if it just protects from serious illness. And this is an important distinction. The difference determines who is likely to receive the vaccine. So if you're going to just prevent serious illness, then you really only want to target populations that are likely to become seriously ill. However, if you've got a vaccine that prevents transmission, then that's much more of a strong argument to give it to everyone and then try and drive herd immunity. The other big issue, of course, is safety of the vaccine. And the press release does say that there are no safety concerns that have been flagged up so far with this. But we must remember this is an entirely new type of vaccine. Rather than using a 
um, portion of a microbe to mimic infection and then provoke an immune response. This is actually taking messenger RNA of the virus that codes for the coronavirus spike protein, which the vaccine carries into the human cells, which then starts to make that spike protein and therefore prompting an immune response, but not causing an infection. No drug like this has ever been approved before. It's never been used on a mass scale. And while in theory, it should be no more dangerous than traditional vaccines, of course, we just don't know. We just don't have the data. We just don't have the time experience with this medication. And history is littered with medications that looked very promising in the start, but have come unstuck in the real world. Then there's the technical challenges of delivering this vaccine. And of course, we've all heard the issue around having to keep it at minus 70 degrees. Now, in a bit of positive news in New Scientist today, I see there's an article about an alternative um, research team based at Imperial College who are also using this same type of mRNA vaccine. And they found that their product is stable at four degrees C for several months. So you can keep it in a standard fridge. They then go on to say that the same should be true for the Pfizer vaccine. Quote, I guarantee they're doing exactly the same studies. So hopefully we'll find the logistics are not as challenging as initially thought, which would mean that some parts of the DES are not going to be as arduous as they seem. So let's talk about the DES. So apologies for those of you who are not in England. In fact, I'm surprised because I've not heard anything about what they might be doing in Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. And one can only assume that your politicians are less in it for popularity soundbites. Or perhaps they simply have less shares in drug companies. But it may be that you just don't have the same committees. So a few weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about the CPS, the Committee of Pointless Shit. Well, this week, I think we've been introduced to the Committee of Hideously Absurd Orders or Chow. Now, there's a big crossover between Chow and the CPS. And I dare say that some of the committee members will sit on both of them. But I think maybe Chow's remit is very different. And that might be to try and say goodbye to general practice by finally pushing us over the edge. When the details of how GPs in England were meant to be delivering this vaccination first came out last week, there were so many issues. Many of us were just in absolute tatters. Firstly, just it being a DES that has to be delivered by PCNs. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of PCNs around England who are doing really, really great work, who are working really well together and really successfully. But I think the reality is that a lot of us are still finding our feet. And then to try and deliver the biggest vaccination programme that's ever been undertaken, I'm just not sure there's any logic in that whatsoever. GP practices on an individual level have been delivering vaccinations for decades very, very successfully. They know their patients the best more than any other organisation. And so maybe it should be down to individual GP practices to be able to do that. Of course, the reason that they're not doing this is because of the way it has to be stored. So it comes in trays of almost 200 vials. That has to be kept at minus 70 degrees. They then distribute that to practices um, where it will thaw out and then you have to dilute the vials with sodium chloride to make up five doses from each. So you basically get 975 doses from one tray and then that tray will last something like five days in the fridge. 
So NHS England did a webinar last night discussing the vaccine. Now, I have to confess, I was um, not joining in there because it was my wife's birthday and we were singing karaoke at home instead. Just the two of us. Uh, No, not the song. No, it was literally just the two of us. Lockdown has put paid to a better party. But in the highlights that I've seen, they said if you can get through all 975 vaccines um, before the end of the week, then great. You don't have to work seven days. Your Saturdays and Sundays are yours. Your bank holidays are yours. However, they suspect that most places would really struggle to achieve that. On a positive note, Chow, the Committee of Hideously Affronting Orders has said that we are allowed to use the additional roles reimbursement scheme staff to help deliver the vaccine. It was my wife that pointed out that Chow must either have a mole or someone's got a sense of humour in there because the additional roles reimbursement scheme has the acronym ARSE. Even more reason to find out who these faceless bureaucrats are so I can let our PCN pharmacists and uh, physician associate have a little chat with them about their nomenclature. One I think would be really interesting to see would be if this report from the new scientist turns out to be correct and that we don't need to have all this faff around how we store these vaccinations. Will they roll back their decision about opening times and days? They've also set out cohort prioritisation and most of this seems quite sensible. Older adults, resident in care homes and care home workers are top of the list and then second are everyone over the age of 80 and then healthcare workers and social care workers as well. I think they should also add people with learning disabilities to this list as well because the reports this week show that that group have a significantly greater chance of dying than the general population. What's also not really addressed is how we're going to manage housebound patients because of course a lot of people on this this highest priority list are going to be those who are very frail who may not be able to come to the practice and no one seems to be discussing this anywhere. We've been told that once you dilute the vaccine that it shouldn't leave the site. What are the implications for our housebound patients? Well, of course, we don't know because they're not in the study. It may be that we just have to accept a big dose of pragmatism here, and I'm all for pragmatism. Lots of treatments that we give are not perfect by a long stretch, but it would be good to get some kind of official statement on this so that we know that it's not a shot to nothing and wasted resources. And the last area of concern about the DES, or at least the last one that I'm going to talk about today, was this idea about a national call line booking system. And given what we've seen with the organisation of IT systems over the, the last few decades in the NHS and in the last few months of the pandemic, I'm really not sure how any of us can have any confidence in a system like this. NHS England have um, suggested that it is something that we can do locally ourselves as well. But this is going to pose workforce challenges for practices too, so there's no easy solution here. Okay, enough about the DES. Let's have a look at some of the research that's come out over the last week or so. And we'll kick off with this study in JAMA, which is looking at an SSRI as acute treatment for COVID-19. So it's been very apparent to all of us in primary care that the majority of the focus of acute COVID treatment has been based around severely unwell people in hospitals and very, very little information coming about out about anything that might be helpful for us in primary care to help community based management. Where on earth could SSRIs fit into this? Are we just trying to make ill people happy? Well, there seems to be a bit more to it than that. So this is looking at a specific SSRI that we don't use much over here called fluvoxamine. And this is a strong sigma-1 receptor agonist. 
Now, we're all becoming experts in receptors that we've never heard of before, but you may not be familiar with the Sigma-1 receptor. So this is an endoplasmic reticulum chaperone protein with various different cellular functions, including regulation of cytokine production. Through this mechanism, fluvoxamine has been demonstrated to reduce shock in mice. I bet they were shocked. They're probably thinking, where the hell's the cheese? And then after nibbling on that tablet, found they just weren't so worried about it anymore. Anyway, back to humans. So in this study, it was a double-blind, randomised controlled trial of fluvoxamine versus placebo. About 150 participants in the community with coronavirus. So they had COVID-19 symptoms within the last seven days and OTSATs of greater than 92%. And they were looking for clinical deterioration, which they defined as... Um, shortness of breath or hospitalization with shortness of breath or pneumonia or stats of less than 92% on air within the next 15 days. So that level of clinical deterioration occurred in zero of the 80 of the fluvoxamine group and six out of 72 in the placebo group. So an absolute risk reduction of 8.7%, which was statistically significant and um, no worries about the safety profile of fluvoxamine. So this is really interesting. It's a bit of a curveball. I'll give you that. Certainly, I think larger trials with longer follow-up is going to be uh, are going to be needed to determine the clinical efficacy. But it's welcome to see them exploring treatment options for patients who can remain in the community. Next, we've got this paper which is published in the BMJ this week, looking at the accuracy of a rapid antibody test. So the potential role for these tests has been quoted in the BMJ as being used for population serosurveillance and assessment of individual risk of developing immunity to coronavirus. It's of interest to us because the UK government have bought at least one million of these test kits already. And given that it feels like the government's constantly just pissing away money either on bad tests, failed schemes or just their own friends, private companies to deliver multi-billion pound contracts, which could have been more successfully delivered but much cheaper by the existing public health agencies, it's very welcome to see that someone's trying to work out if this is really worth it. So the initial study, which appeared to be commissioned by the maker of the device and remains in preprint only, quoted that the sensitivity was 97.7% and the specificity, specificity was 100%. Now, this new study published in the BMJ, which was funded by Public Health England, found that things are not quite as good as they might seem. So they found that sensitivity was 92.5%. And specificity, 97.9%. So on the face of it, you think, well, it's going to miss a small number of cases, but at least it still seems quite specific. But the devil is in the detail here because that's all predicated on the background prevalence of coronavirus. And so they've calculated in a population with a 10% prevalence... And that actually sounds like a pretty high prevalence. Even at the moment, we're often seeing around a 1% prevalence in many populations. Then they found that only 83% of positive results would actually be correct. 17 would be false positives. This has clear implications. So if you think that you've been positive for coronavirus when you when you really haven't been, first, you're going to have unnecessary time off at work. And then second, you're likely to change your behavior as a result of that, therefore putting you and others around you at risk. So is it worth it? I'll let you decide. And finally, another piece of research in the BMJ this week. And this is a fantastic choice of research. 
It is a systematic review and meta-analysis of mortality due to cancer treatment delay. I think many of us will have been in the position in the past where we're having to try and justify to patients why they are having delays on cancer assessment and then subsequent management. And I think there's this inclination to try and almost protect the NHS, protect the idea about the NHS and try and explain that it really is doing quite a good job, all things considered. But this study shows why we really shouldn't collude with mediocrity and we really do need to challenge delays when they happen. So how long a wait is too long? Well, this study tells us what I think most of us already appreciate, which is that there is no defined time limit for when is safe. So once a cancer develops, you are on a ticking bomb. The sooner that you can get treatment, the better. We simply can't say to a patient, no, you'll be fine for two weeks, and then after that, you're going to be stuffed. It doesn't work like that. And they use the example of breast cancer. So with a baseline 12% mortality, um, they find as the delay increases, the mortality increases as well. So for a thousand women, if you wait four weeks, then you get an extra 10 deaths, eight weeks, an extra 20, uh, 12 weeks, an extra 31 deaths. So in the NHS over the next few years, cancer is one of the biggest priorities. And one of the best things they can do after trying to improve early diagnosis is just streamline the system so that patients don't necessarily have to wait two weeks to get to a clinic and then another two weeks for some investigations and then another two weeks for some results and then several weeks before they're going to start treatment. It should be possible to have a system where you can get assessment, diagnosis and management all within the space of a few days. It's managed in other countries and is another example of why we see this difference in cancer mortalities. There's clear implications with the pandemic at the moment as well as people delay coming to see us and then we're struggling to get people seen in a timely fashion. There's no wonder that people are talking about a cancer pandemic after the COVID one. Okay, well, that's enough for today, I think. It's always hard to be upbeat after you've just been talking about cancer. I was going to briefly mention I had my appraisal this week. So as part of the changes for appraisal, I wanted to see how little I could write down to satisfy the requirements. And it turns out that the, the answer is you need to write down very, very little. So this is very welcome. I had a fantastic appraisal. Thanks to my appraiser in case she's listening today. And I wanted to share with you just one of the fantastic comments that she made during it. And that was about finding that spark of joy and holding on to it. So I don't want to be too negative about the vaccine. This is very positive news this week. Yes, there are questions to be answered, but this is significant progress. And there's more vaccines on the horizon which are going to publish their results in the very near future. So then we will have options as well. So thanks for listening. Remember, you can always get in touch. So you can email us at hottopics at mbmedical.com. Find us on Facebook and on Twitter. So at Dr. Neil Tucker or at GP Hot Topics. And we'll be back in three weeks. So until then, um, to quote one of my patients, as she said to me this week, this is from Hill Street Blues. Too old for me. Some of you will have loved it. Hey, take care of yourself out there. Bye bye.